If you listen to the Van City podcast on a regular or even semi-regular basis, do us a favor and go to vancity.church/survey and fill out a very brief anonymous questionnaire. Thanks a lot. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church podcast. The following teaching is part one in the series, Practicing the Way, Community. Community is a buzzword at the moment. There are all sorts of cultural conversations being entertained about what it means to have or live in community. Community is also a concept that absolutely permeates the teachings of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament. So what makes Jesus' concept of community any different than our friends or families or ordinary social structures, and why is that important? Scientists once assumed that addiction was created by simple exposure to addictive agents. The thinking went something like this. Allow someone to take heroin a few times, and they will become addicted to heroin. But in the late 70s, Canadian psychologist Bruce K. Alexander put this mode of thinking to the test with his famous Rat Park experiment. In it, Dr. Alexander challenged typical studies on addiction conducted by offering a rat water laced with morphine alongside plain drinking water. This was the typical way to test addiction. And in every typical study, the rat in question would chug the dope water until it was addicted and eventually dead. And scientists thus concluded that the availability and subsequent use of drugs creates addiction and all of its subsequent fallout. But in the Rat Park experiment, Bruce Alexander wondered if the same results could be produced in a radically different setting. So rather than isolating a single rat in a cold, sterile cage, Alexander created a luxurious rat fun world, 200 times the floor area of a standard laboratory cage. And Rat Park was populated with all kinds of rats, rats everywhere, as well as comfortable places to sleep and play and mate. And in Rat Park, there were two water sources, like in all the other earlier experiments. There was one water source laced with morphine, one laced with nothing at all. And what Alexander discovered is that in Rat Park, very few rats even sampled the dope water. None of the rats used the dope water compulsively, and not a single rat overdosed or died. So Rat Park seemed to demonstrate that exposure to and even use of addictive substances do not always create addiction in and of themselves. Instead, the cages our subjects are placed in create the necessary conditions for addiction to occur. Many life forms possess the innate need to bond and connect with other life forms. And when said life forms are healthy and they're given the ability to bond and connect with other life forms around them, they will usually do that. If life forms are cut off from or distracted from their ability to bond with other life forms, they seek to bond with something that promises uh, a, a reprieve from the pain that's created from lack of bonding. In other words, the pain of loneliness. And in other words, loneliness can destroy people. People without people become lonely. And this is true for everyone, regardless of like your Myers-Briggs personality test or Zodiac sign, you know, kind of the same thing. (laughs) That was my personal dig at the Myers-Briggs test. You don't have to agree with me. Even if a test tells you that you are an introvert, for example, without relational bonding with other human beings, you become lonely and you suffer fallout. And as an aside to that whole conversation, the introvert, extrovert, mumbo-jumbo, read correctly, does not mean that what we typically, the way we typically use it in conversation, which is extroverts love people and fun and social gatherings, and introverts don't. They hate them. It's a simple matter of whether one is replenished by time with others or replenished by time to themselves. So introvert doesn't mean, I'm so awkward, I hate parties. Introverts are often wildly social and outgoing and relational. It just makes them tired at the end of the day. They recharge batteries with quiet time alone to themselves. Lots of good, fun things make you tired. It doesn't mean that you don't like them. Extroverts can be shy and quiet and awkward. They can love and enjoy time to themselves, but it tires them out. So they're replenished by time with other people. The point is, all people are designed to connect with other people. And you don't have to follow Jesus to believe there is something intrinsically dangerous about individualism and about loneliness. 
Intense and ongoing research into the long-term effects of digital addiction continue to confirm what everyone more or less expected and suspected. Smartphones and social media have perhaps ironically driven people further apart than they've ever been. Last year, the UK appointed a loneliness minister after one study revealed that nearly 20% nearly of the population claims to suffer from ongoing loneliness. In the US, 35% of people claim chronic loneliness. Only 8% of people claim to have entertained conversations with their neighbors in the last year. In 1984, the average American claimed to have at least three confidants, someone trustworthy and close to whom they could turn. A recent report found that 25% of Americans claimed they have no one, no such person at all. The former Surgeon General wrote that, quote, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, it was loneliness. Doctors and researchers now believe that loneliness may impact lifespan more than obesity. Loneliness has been linked to heart disease and dementia and, more obviously, anxiety and depression. And loneliness contributes to more than physical and emotional decline. The outrage culture in which we all live is a constant reminder that loneliness often creates tribalism. Tribalism is a kind of toxic shadow of community because a community is about mutual love and tribalism is about mutual hate. Community is about what we believe together, and tribalism is about what we are against together. And since we all want to connect, even subconsciously, tribalism does offer a sinister, sinister veneer of that connection that we all desire. And sure, it's corrupting, and it's venomous, and it's miserable to spend all your time looking for the next thing over which to come undone with rage and offense, but it feels so good to be on a side and belong to something and someone. But a side is not a community. Community is a word we often attach to the concept of church, as in my church community. We talk that way here at Van City all the time. But what does it mean to actually practice community as a spiritual discipline? And how does the way of Jesus use community to combat things like individualism and loneliness and tribalism? And the answer to those questions are often not what we expect them to be. So if you're new to Van City, the paradigm with which we approach Jesus and the Bible is something called apprenticeship, meaning we don't think of ourselves as people who just believe something in our minds and then show up to sing songs on a Sunday night, though both things are great. We actually want to learn Jesus' way of life, practice it, trial and error, success and failure, together as a family. Jesus is the teacher, the master, the Lord, and we are his disciples or his students or his apprentices. So we spent a lot of time studying this ancient library of writings that we call the Bible. Jesus, our teacher, had an insanely high view of the Bible, so we do as well. We follow it in his example. And every few months, we pause what is usually our kind of line-by-line -line study of the Bible to take on a new spiritual discipline or a new principle of emotional health, things that are modeled in the life of Jesus and taught by the New Testament. The reason being that we're not just reading the Bible to collect information. We want to be transformed by Jesus' actual way of life. In fact, we believe that any person who decides to follow Jesus takes on three all-encompassing lifelong goals. That is, to be like Jesus so that you eventually become like Jesus, and then you are prepared to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. And one of the most basic, fundamental, and foundational spiritual disciplines, something represented all throughout the New Testament and the history of the church, is the spiritual discipline or practice of community. Now, community is complex. In one sense, we're doing it right now. Yes, this, the Sunday gathering, is and has been for centuries one of the primary expressions of community for apprentices of Jesus, this thing called the church, and really this mode of church. We also have something called Van City Communities. Some churches call them small groups or something similar. And it's the, basic, uh, the basic premise is pretty simple. It's pretty tough to actually connect with some 90 people in a room when you only have a couple of hours and a lot of that time is some guy yakking at you for you know, 30 minutes or whatever it might be. But a dozen or so people around a dinner table talking to one another, that's a great way to know other people and to be known by other people. But obviously it's not that simple. A ton of you are in Van City communities. Some of you have been in those communities for years now. I think we can all agree that things get 
complicated if you actually try to share life with people. So this is a conversation worth having again and again and again. And we'll get started tonight with the scriptures. You guys okay? You all right? You ready? Staying hydrated? All right, we're going to take a brief kind of like 30,000-foot tour of a few community passages together. Let's read Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. Matthew 4, 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake because they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. I'll pause for a moment. If you're at all familiar with this story, that line, I will send you out to fish for people, sometimes translated, I will make you fishers of men, has likely been stretched to the breaking point. Uh, It's often silly and sentimental sounding to us. But this expression was actually a first century idiom that was used by rabbis as an invitation to would-be apprentices. Jesus is saying, in effect, if you come and follow me, study under me, apprentice me, I will teach you to, like me, capture the hearts and the imaginations of people. Or in other words, follow me and I will make you into a great teacher like I am. Thus, in verse 20, it says, at once they left their nets and followed him. It goes on. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and again, immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So what I want you to see in this text is this. As Jesus begins what's often called his ministry or his mission, his first item of business is to gather for himself a community. Meaning, among other things, Jesus did not work solo, nor did he invite one apprentice to follow him, but several. And Jesus is clear from the outset that though the invitation is wide, the standard is very, very high. So turn just a couple of pages to the right to Matthew chapter 8. I'm going to have you guys flip around just a little bit. You'll be fine. Most of tonight's passages we've already unpacked in what some might describe excruciating detail in our ongoing study of Matthew. Tonight we're taking more of like a conceptual tour, so bear with me. Let's read Matthew 8, beginning with verse 18. It says, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Verse 19, Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens, birds have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first, let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. So in the story, there's a lot there, obviously. But notice there's an ongoing contrast between the few who are ready to leave anything and everything behind to follow Jesus and those who are decidedly less prepared to do so. Let's look at a bit from the very next chapter, Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So this is interesting. Now, Jesus' innermost circle is populated by a wild spectrum of what we would think of as maturity and immaturity. So you've got upright, Torah-observing Jewish boys like Peter and Andrew, but now you've also got criminals and crooks in league with the oppressor, like Matthew, the tax collector. Why? Because Matthew was prepared to follow Jesus. So for Jesus, the initial level of maturity is secondary to the initial level of commitment. So look at the next chapter, Matthew 10, beginning with first, the very first verse, it says, Matthew 10, verse 1, Jesus called his 12 disciples to them. He gave them authority to drive out impure spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, you have Simon, who's called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, his brother John. We read about those guys. You've got Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector. That's scandalous. You've got James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. You've got Simon, the zealot, which is weird. You've got Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So at this point, the group has gone from kind of like strangely disproportionate to wildly varied. You have Simon, the zealot, who belonged to a kind of right-wing Jewish insurgency group. 
that so believed in Israeli liberation that they employed like violent guerrilla warfare tactics on Roman soldiers. But you have Matthew, the tax collector in the same group, and he was actually paid by Rome to take money from poor Jewish people. So this would kind of be something like Jesus wandering through a political protest in Portland and tapping a masked baseball bat wielding member of Antifa and saying, hey, you, follow me. And then he immediately turns to like some angry young white Republican in a MAGA hat and says, you too, come follow me. And then the three of them go off together. But with Simon and Matthew, the juxtaposition is actually even more shocking than that would be. And now these two people essentially live and work together every single day, day in and day out. They sit across from one another at the dinner table. They learn the same lessons from the same teacher every single day. And that kind of polarity permeates Jesus' band of misfits. So in the story, they argue, they disagree, they endure conflict and embarrassment. Let's look one of one of those stories in Matthew chapter 20. Just one last passage. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. This is a funny, embarrassing story. It says, The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with, their, with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it that you want? Jesus asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine, disciples of Jesus, may sit at your right, the other on your left, in your kingdom. So at this point in the story, those who are convinced that Jesus is indeed the Messiah of Israel, the long-awaited King of Israel, they also mostly assume that he was mounting what would become a violent uprising against Rome. So this woman is kind of asking him, hey, when you overthrow the oppressor and install a new kingdom, give my sons prestigious positions in the kingdom. And Jesus, ever gracious, answers her in verse 22. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Now, the cup to which Jesus refers is a metaphor for suffering. We can, they answer. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. Both disciples were killed eventually for their faith in Jesus. And the story goes on. But, Jesus says, to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now look at what happens in verse 24. When the ten, the rest of the disciples, heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And you can uh, probably imagine the outrage. Away from the other disciples, the mother of James and John asked Jesus for special treatment, special placement amongst the 12. The others eventually hear about this, and they are, perhaps understandably, ticked. It seems kind of scheming or crooked or dishonest. They had their mom do it, which seems kind of lame to, to me anyway. Verse 25 says, Jesus called them all together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. So Jesus tells them, listen, you guys know full well that out there in the world, it's all about power and position and prestige. And the same is true of us. The world we know is all about the best fabricated image presented on Instagram, the most passport stamps or the nicest things or the most followers or the best career or the most money, the perfect family, the best education or intelligence. And Jesus says in verse 26, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you, and pause, what will Jesus say? The greatest among you must be the most offended must attend the most protests or have the nicest house or the most followers or participate in the most social justice causes or the greatest among you must fight for your own rights. Instead, Jesus says, the greatest among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, which is the way of Jesus referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So to live in this community that Jesus is building is to adopt an entirely new paradigm for life in the world, one that not only reimagines but reverses the power dynamics that the rest of the world takes for granted. And this is, throughout the teachings of Jesus, what it means to live in love. Jesus' community is the place where his apprentices learn to love God, one another, the world, their enemies, to be permeated by self-sacrificial love and to radiate that love out. 
to the rest of the world. Disciples of Jesus only learn and accomplish this in the context of community. But interestingly, community is, as you know, not in any sense a uniquely Christian word or concept. It's just that Jesus has a wholly unique conception of the idea of community. The community is really kind of a buzzword. Lots of people talk about, praise, celebrate the idea of community. Many of them, however, have something in mind very different than Jesus and the authors of the New Testament. Think about, for example, the term online community. In Bo Burnham's uh, 2018 coming-of-age dramedy, Eighth Grade, there are lengthy sequences expended depicting Kayla, who's the film's protagonist, sitting in her bedroom, scrolling through a seemingly endless Instagram feed long sequences of this. And the film doesn't really comment on it as good or bad, it just is. And common to the film's glowing reviews was the celebration of its realism. Actress uh, Elsie Fisher, who plays Kayla, noted that, quote, for Kayla, social media is almost religious. Author Robert Barker contrasted eighth grade with earlier coming-of-age films like 1982's Fast Times at Ridgemont High or 2004's Mean Girls, and he noted that rather than navigating high school cliques and social structures, the characters in eighth grade navigate, and I quote, a digital war of all against all, preening, pretending, and pontificating as much to themselves as to an anonymous audience. For years, what's now been like well over a decade, I have heard peers complain about or at least confess to what they perceive to be the lameness of something like Facebook, but they almost always say, and I quote, but it's the only way I can stay connected to some distant person that I used to know. And the thing is, uh, scanning an occasional curated update from a friend that you haven't been close to in years or glimpsing a carefully staged photo of their night out or their vacation is not in any sense being relationally connected with that person. I hear people who have just learned from a successive chain of sources that a person with whom they were once acquainted got a new job or has a new boyfriend or girlfriend or got plastic surgery or something like that. And I've listened to people begin an investigative search through social media to put together clues as to what may have happened. And there's a reason that it becomes like a, a wild goose chase, because people get to pick what they put online. Knowing someone's online persona is never actually knowing that person, which explains its mass appeal. <laughs> only knowing the good, carefully curated pieces of a person and only sharing the good, carefully curated pieces of yourself is certainly less messy than actually knowing another person. And yes, this includes even the kind of ostensible self-depreciation posts, which are also, of course, carefully curated. And this approach drives people further apart from real intimacy and formation, not closer together. In actual community, we hurt and offend one another, and when we are maturing and growing in emotional and spiritual healthiness, hopefully we learn from that. But in a social media bubble, negativity and conflict are always inherently and instantaneously bad and to be purged with extreme prejudice. In fact, in the spring of 2014, uh, the popular journalistic junk heap called BuzzFeed announced that it would no longer feature any content that could be construed as negative, which is, I think, quite telling of a mounting generational need to only accept that which is deemed positive by the herd mentality. And if you think that I'm some kind of like Amish fundamentalist, most, if not all, of my reading on this particular topic comes from authors and studies done by individuals and groups who have no faith agenda whatsoever. In her fascinating book, iGen, Jean M. Twinge writes of the social media world this, wanting to feel safe all of the time can also lead to wanting to protect against emotional upset, the concern with emotional safety, somewhat unique to iGen, meaning a generation growing up with smartphones and tablets. That can include preventing bad experiences, sidestepping situations that might be uncomfortable, and avoiding people with ideas different from your own. That's where things get dicey, both for iGen and for the older generations struggling to understand them. Now think for a moment of the most meaningful long-term relationships with some of the people closest to you in your life, and ask yourself, 
Have those relationship, relationships always been painless and uplifting and void of offense and positive and emotionally safe? Anyone with a close friend of more than a couple of years will tell you immediately and emphatically no to all of those questions. So being in some sense connected is not the same thing as community. You can be connected to all kinds of yahoos and have no community with any of them. Heck, I'm connected with the dude at Gainers Automotive, you know? I've been in there a handful of times at this point for automotive purposes, you see? And then I saw him at the farmer's market. I saw the gentleman from Gainers Automotive. And my recognition came slow because he said, hey, and that was it. And then I immediately squinted, which is uh, rarely a gesture of friendly recognition when you squint at someone that's a couple of feet away from you. And I realized, oh, it's the guy who did my oil change. And then, then I said, hey, you know, what else can I say? Hi. And that was about it. And then Isla, my daughter who's three, she asks real loudly, Dada, who that man? So that's how she asks questions. So now I'm kind of trying to conceive of a way to answer this question to her uh, satisfaction, also to the Gainer Automotive's guy's satisfaction, because I'm assuming in that moment to be called the car guy is somehow unfriendly. So anyway, at the point I'm making is that connectedness is not community. I just said, it's this guy, you know. <laughs> connectedness is not community. Neither is chemistry community. What I mean is that finding someone who likes what you like is relatively easy compared to navigating the painful ups and downs of sharing life together. I like so many obscure niche things that I have old friends in other states who only text me about those things every couple of years, you know? It's easy to talk to people you agree with, especially if it's the only thing on, on which, about which you talk, the things on which you agree. But just this last Tuesday, I was sitting on the couch next to my friend Heather, who's in my community, it was community group night, and she was trying to explain to me and maybe sell me on her uh, love of like auto-tuned mumble rap. And, uh, and this notion was lost on me altogether. And we have things, so we have things in common and we have things that are not in common at all, but that's not the precept on which we have community or go to the same church or try to follow Jesus with the same group of people. Because you can have community among people with whom you have little chemistry or no chemistry at all. And you can have chemistry amongst people with whom there's no real community. The same thing, they're not synonyms for one another. So sometimes people show up to church and what they're looking for is an affinity group not a community. I remember once someone coming and immediately telling me that they wanted to be, uh, this is just an example, they wanted to be placed in something that was like, you know, a single mom community for 30-somethings who live on the east side, work in the metal profession, medical profession, and, you know, like games as a hobby or something like that. And I was like, ma'am, this church is really small. For all I know, you're it. You know, the community is done. Enjoy your Tuesday night. So we tell people in basics, the class that we use to talk about community, and which is uh, next Sunday, by the way. <laughs> I was supposed to tell you guys that early. Next Sunday, if you want to come learn about how to get into community at Van City, show up here at 2 o'clock. We'll give you the whole rundown, and then you can decide. So we have this class called Basics, and we tell people, look, these people may be a lot like you. That happens sometimes. They may, may be nothing like you, but it doesn't really matter because that's not why you're here. The only common denominator necessary for Jesus to build a community is Jesus himself. Meaning to belong to the family of God or the community of Jesus, you do not need a common social bracket or a common age group or a similar aesthetic preference or a shared ethnicity or nationality or the same political party or the same socioeconomic status. You only need Jesus as Lord. And on this, Jesus himself can and will build a community. And the idea is really that simple. If someone asks, what is community in the New Testament sense? It is simply the people with whom you share your life in a real meaningful sense as you learn to follow Jesus together. So you can have friends that aren't your community. That's great. And you can have community amongst people that don't fit your traditional paradigm of friendship, meaning you might not go to the same movies together every weekend and enjoy the same records or type of music or whatever it might be, but you can still have community together. 
And community is the vehicle, the arena in which we live out discipleship to Jesus. It has always and only been done this way from Jesus himself to 2019 and so on. In fact, some scholars like Scott McKnight go as far as to argue that the community of Jesus and what Jesus called the kingdom of God are essentially two ways of describing the exact same concept. So some spiritual formation writers think that um, they make a case that the two most important spiritual disciplines are community and solitude because these two ideas are like containers that hold all the other spiritual disciplines. Every spiritual discipline that you do is either conducted in the context of community or in the context of solitude. But solitude and community are not the same thing as like alone time versus social time. You can have alone time in spades or social time out to wazoo without ever having actual solitude or without ever having actual community. And in my experience, personally, as a pastor of other people and as a person myself, I've observed widespread fear and unwillingness, both in myself and in other people, to actually embrace the fullness of either solitude or community. And it actually makes a ton of sense if you think about it. Both of them are really hard, at least in the long-term sense. They're costly. They're sometimes painful and complicated. So to skate by, many people adopt a kind of pseudo-community, or they do a kind of pseudo-solitude. Some people uh, show up to church, or they show up to community, they're in one, they have Christian friends, they'd, but they don't actually step into full, messy vulnerability or shared life and shared discipleship with other people who follow Jesus. And this can happen for any number of reasons, but three in particular seem kind of more common than the others. The first being individualism. Writer and professor David Brooks wrote this. We live in a culture of hyper-individualism. There's always a tension between self and society. Over the past 60 years, we have swung too far toward the self. The only way out is to rebalance, to build a culture that steers people toward relation, community, and commitment. The things we most deeply yearn for yet undermine with our hyper-individualistic way of life. And notice that word he uses, commitment. In my years um, participating in churches, working and leading and planting a church eventually, I can tell you that an unwillingness to commit is easily the most ubiquitous toxin to pollute a church family, a community, however you want to describe it. Because to actually embrace community, one must relinquish a part of their autonomy. They must open themselves to the vulnerability of loving voices, but flawed voices speaking into their way of life, their decisions, their actions, their life as a whole. You have to commit to one thing, which inevitably, be, inevitably means saying no to other things. So you end up with people who are willing to show up, but not to pitch in, or to talk, but not actually do the spiritual disciplines, or to come to community night, but not come to the Sunday gathering, or to come to the Sunday gathering, but not come to the community night. And this approach makes church into kind of like a veritable buffet table. I'll have this, but not this. I want what I like. I don't want what I don't like. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not in any way saying that unless you are a perfect model of church and community attendance and participation, then you are somehow not really a part of things. Some aspects of community come really easy to some people and really difficult to others. And there are all sorts of reasonable explanations for this. One being that we're all over the map in terms of our discipleship, our journey in following Jesus, our pursuit of spiritual formation, what we think about Jesus in the first place, our emotional and spiritual health and maturity. And remember, Jesus does not use initial maturity as a qualification for community but he does use the initial commitment level as a qualification for community. The idea is that on a journey, we're going somewhere. We're moving from one place to another. We're moving from more flaky to more committed, from more consumerist to more contributive. But we know, believe me, that the journey is complicated and messy. Ask my community. They'll tell you all kinds of stories about me and my messiness. So even though the standard is very high. It's not an idealistic standard, which is, to my estimation, the second great hindrance to community. In 1938, 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote what is largely still considered one of the landmark works on Christian community. And in it, he wrote this. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Every human wish and dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves the dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God and himself accordingly. So typically, community tends to work itself out in a kind of, uh, I believe, a six-stage cycle. You start with what we often call the honeymoon pyramid, or pyramid, <laughs> period. It's not a pyramid scheme. It starts with a honeymoon period, which for many people is like, hey, this is actually kind of fun. You get together with other people, you eat dinner, you talk about things. It's kind of fun to get to know each other. Not for everyone, but for most people, you'd be surprised. They really enjoy it. And then some level of vulnerability enters the picture, and they're actually praying with each other and crying with each other and stuff. They're like, this is the best community that's ever happened at a church. And then eventually you realize that that level of excitement is non-sustainable, so it starts to kind of peter out. And then you're like, I guess I don't even really care about community anymore. Maybe you show up and you're just kind of skating by and barely even participating. Or you're participating, but for what? Which obviously eventually mounts and gives way to frustration. And you're like, what are we even doing here, man? This community used to be the best. Now no one ever cries anymore. I don't get it. And then you start to ask questions like, is this even the right community for me? No one's crying. I'd like to cry. Or maybe you're like, people still cry, and I'm sick of the crying. And you're like, I don't think this is the right thing for me. I don't think I'm actually growing, or I don't want to grow. And you get scared. And so you have to make a decision. And there's only two decisions to make. The first is that I'm out. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to move on to another community or no community at all. I quit. And that happens to a lot of people, maybe even the majority of people. Or you can move on to acceptance. You know what? This is probably this way because there are people here. And people are messed up and they're all over the map. And sometimes it's awesome and sometimes it's not so awesome. And you accept that. That's the way that it is. It doesn't mean that you accept unhealthiness. It means you accept that things aren't always great. And then you kind of re-engage with the community on the community's terms. And you say like, you know what? It's not always going to be perfect, but we can actually learn to follow Jesus together in a context like this. You do your best to address unhealthiness. You do your best to fight for one another, to fight the apathy, to fight the frustration, fight the fear, not kind of pushing it down, but talking about it and being honest and vulnerable. And then that community moves into health. And then it starts to feel like the honeymoon season all over again. And then you start to feel a little bit apathetic about it. And then you start to feel frustration and fear, and the cycle kind of goes on and on. Because community itself is by nature messy and complicated. So there are all sorts of very valid problems that inevitably surface when people share life and discipleship. And the easy answer to why is because there are people there. But there's also an avalanche of community issues that bloom from the simple recipe of a person or persons who enter a community with an expectation. It should be this way in my mind. And then they are undone when that expectation is not met. And those expectations could be all sorts of things. We should all be best friends, or we should also not be close friends at all. We need space. Or we should all be crying every single week, or we should never, ever cry. We should all be maturing at the same basic rate. Or we should all be on different journeys and allow each other to have our journeys. We should all be taking vacations together. We don't need any extra time together. It's all over the map. And so the idealist is kind of notorious for migrating from one community to another in search of that perfect and elusive group that will check all their boxes. The same thing is true of churches in the generic sense. When people come up to me and say, often with the best uh, of intentions, and I know what they mean, they'll say something like, man, this church is so much better than my last church because that church was awful in these ways. I will often tell them, oh, believe me, give us a second and we will disappoint you. It's, uh, it's our new tagline, Van City. Give us a second. We will disappoint you. I'm kidding. But people 
populate this church. People lead this church. So it is by nature imperfect. We're not resigned to our imperfection by any means, but we're absolutely aware of it. We want to grow and we want to change and we want to repent when we miss the mark and we do miss the mark. We want to mature. We want to learn. We want to become more like Jesus all the time as a family, as a leadership, as a combination of those things. But we understand that it will be a messy, imperfect journey. And that gives way to the third great hindrance to community, which is intimidation. A while back, Cameron, who kind of heads up the communities at Van City, he was having coffee with another pastor, I think, in the city, and they were talking shop about, how does your church do community? How does your church do community? And this pastor kind of uh, scoffed when he heard our whole spiel on how we do community. And he said, man, your ask for commitment is so high that we would never ask that much of people because they would never do it. So if you've been to basics, you know we we make it pretty clear that, yes, the ask is pretty high, and that can be intimidating. We get it. We just want to be honest about that from the jump so that people aren't disappointed when they get a couple weeks in. But to my estimation, what intimidates people considering community is not necessarily what they hear in basics about the expectation to show up and participate. It's not necessarily the uh, idea of being in a community and having to do stuff and having to interact with other people. What intimidates them is the idea of actually putting yourself out there to God and to other people, actually knowing other people and being known by other people, actually hauling out the beauty and the ugliness of your discipleship, your journey with other people, not for them just to look at, but for them to hold and carry with you. That freaks people out. If you've had any kind of meaningful long-term relationship, then you know it becomes impossible to uphold pretense the longer that you go. So my wife, we've been married for almost 12 years now. All the most embarrassing aspects of my personality, all my brokenness, it is way too late to convince her that I am someone I am not. I can't fool her into thinking I'm awesome in ways that I'm not awesome, but in the ways that I am. No, I'm just kidding. Peter, did you think that was funny? Thanks. All right. So I went right to him. He's my friend, and he'll encourage me when I need it. But so I can't convince her that I'm great when I'm not great, but she is the person with whom I have the most friendship and the most intimacy and the most love. And the same is true of my close friends. You you arrive at a wall of one another's crappiness, for lack of a better way of saying it, and you have to make it through in love or you end up giving up altogether. A while back, I got into an... Peter, this is a story about you. I got into an argument with my good friend Peter over here. And uh, we were reconciling after the argument. And he told me that part of him actually takes comfort in getting into a scuffle and working it out. And I remember that he said, I don't fight with people who aren't really my friends. And I thought, oh, that makes a lot of sense. That's why I think the, the two most important components of a healthy community of disciples are vulnerability and accountability. In his book on community, M. Scott Peck writes this, there can be no vulnerability without risk. There can be no community without vulnerability. There can be no peace and ultimately no life without community. When people actually communicate, things get risky. You can and likely will get hurt, and the people in your community will hold you accountable for the things that you do and the things that you say. And please listen, you will not mature as a disciple of Jesus without vulnerability, and without accountability. With only vulnerability, you might feel pretty good about being open with other people, but there's no one calling each other to a higher standard, so there's no real change, no real formation. And if you attempt to have accountability without vulnerability, nothing happens because you're just correcting one another with no real access to one another's hearts and minds and lives. You have to have both things to mature as a disciple of Jesus. Accountability and vulnerability, working together in tandem. We spend a lot of time warning people about the inevitable messiness of community, but I think we should spend just as much time celebrating that same messiness. Do you think people in recovery groups like AA who are experiencing real transformation from vulnerability and accountability wish that it wasn't so messy? I think that they realize that there is no sanitized and sterilized form of true vulnerability and accountability. It is by design messy. 
So I've, uh, for example, struggled with uh, self-loathing for as long as I can remember, since I was a small, small kid. And I've been experiencing some pretty significant breakthrough over the last year through therapy and community and stuff Jesus is doing in my life. But for me, putting on display the stuff about myself that makes me want to not like myself is really hard. So I understand that. I understand that completely. Part of me believes deep down that the people I love, if when they know me, they won't love me anymore and they will leave. But ironically, the people who have loved me for the longest time and with the most faithfulness are the people who have intimate knowledge, objective knowledge of the ways that I'm not so great. But my friend Mike, who's part of Van City, is downstairs, downstairs helping with the kids. He's known me for like 20 years now. He has seen and heard some of my worst moments in my entire life, and some of them were directed at him, quite frankly. And he has called me on my sin, and I've called him on his sin, and we have done this really poorly at times, and sometimes we've done it, I think, pretty decently. It's been anything but a constantly positive, emotional safe space, free of conflict or hurt, but it has also been one of the truest friendships and truest dynamics of community that I've ever had in my life. And I've learned over the years that combating loneliness is costly, and it's really intimidating for that reason. But I can't have true community with the people I love unless they actually know me, and I know them, and we find some way to endure the complicated messiness of it all. Because we're both at our best and at our worst with the people that we love the most. Ask my wife, Abby. Ask my kids. Ask my closest friends. They will tell you the things they love most about me, and they are totally able to tell you the worst aspects of my personality and my biggest mistakes. I've said and done all the meanest things to the people I love the most. And the people I love the most are the ones who have called me on it in my life. Thus, there are so many people who go to church and have Christian friends, but yet experience such deep ongoing loneliness because they have yet to plumb the depths of true vulnerability and accountability because it is intimidating. The New Testament uses this term, one another, to talk about the dynamic that happens in a community of disciples of Jesus. It uses it over and over and over again to teach us over and over again how to live in a community. Think about some of those texts that uh, many of you know really well. Be devoted to one another in brotherly and sisterly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another just as Jesus the King accepted you. Instruct one another. There's a tough one. Greet another, one another with a holy kiss. You don't have to do that exact thing. The point is there's intimacy there. And this is just Romans. That's from one book. There are 59 such one another commands in the New Testament. And look, they all assume that if you follow Jesus, you are also conducting your discipleship in the context of a community with one another in the language of the New Testament. But it also assumes that this community is messy, obviously, given the corrective language of some of those texts, and that this is the only way we learn to love. And so we talk so much at Van City about training, about practicing the way of Jesus. And in this sense, community is the training ground, the arena, the, the dojo, the gym, the swamp in Dagobah, or whatever it might be. And to draw out the metaphor, in that gym, in that dojo, whatever it might be, you fall down, and you get hurt, and you make mistakes, and you do all this work and all this hurting just to learn one dang thing. And that is, in this sense, to love one another. Thus, Jesus opens the invitation wide to anyone and everyone willing to join his school of love or community. This will be the place where you train to love and learn relationships and get it wrong and apologize and repent and start over. So the practice that we're about to start in our communities is about honing some basic emotionally healthy relationship skills. You'll talk about where you're at in your discipleship to Jesus. You'll talk about the concept of emotional health and the expectations that you have for one another. You'll talk about looking beneath the surface, how to actually fight and disagree with integrity, rhythms of a healthy community. For those of you not yet in a community, 
the first practice, there's actually a practice built into this particular one for those not yet in a community, and it's just kind of the preface phase to being in a community at all, stepping in, so to speak. And these practices, I want to say again and again, they're not imposed rules. They're not objective guides for the only right way to live or the only right way to have community. They're more like invitations. The invitation is just give it a shot. Keep an open mind. See what happens as a result. We don't believe, honestly, that we have the only model for community at Van City. Not, all, not at all. We don't even think that our Van City community model is necessarily the only community that you can have. This is just a form to facilitate what we see taught by Jesus and the New Testament. The funny thing about contrasting uh, ideas of community and constantly discussing ideas of community, which is inevitable when you follow Jesus, he talked about it all the time, we talk about it all the time, is that it's impossible to avoid the pitfalls of presenting what starts to sound like an ideal or an objective sounding rule book. Even though I'm doing my best to be balanced, nuance things, tell you guys that that's not the case. So however this finds you to end, if you're all in or you were all in last year but not so much right now, or you're sick of the sermon and you just want to be done, listen for one more second before we sing again. I have no interest, frankly and honestly, in guilting you into a community. I'm not worried about that at all. I feel no rush to herd everyone into one thing or another. I don't believe that our model for communities is the only model. I don't even necessarily believe it's the best model per se. I think it's the right model for our particular family. And on that note, you're invited to give it a shot. My hope and my prayer is not for a church that has the most people in communities or the best attendance on a Sunday evening. Though both of those things matter, absolutely. Both of those are an indication of where we're at in terms of commitment and maturity, absolutely. But that's not my hope and prayer for this particular practice. My hope, my prayer, truly and genuinely, is that we would consider the teachings of Jesus and give it a shot together, not by ourselves. That we would take all this seriously and love one another, have patience with one another, learn to accept the messiness of the narrow road of discipleship and to help one another walk it because we need one another. You cannot walk the road of discipleship all by yourself. So may we learn to follow Jesus and may we learn to follow Jesus together. On that note, let's pray and invite God's Spirit to come and speak before we sing. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.